Heads up, listeners. In this episode, we discuss some topics that may not be for everyone. Sex and sexuality, AIDS, mental illness, and suicidal ideation. If you are experiencing a mental health crisis or thoughts of self-harm, you can call the National Hotline for Mental Health Crises and Suicide Prevention at 1-800-273-TALK. That's 1-800-273-8255. And for more information about AIDS prevention and treatment, you can go to hiv.gov or plannedparenthood.org. No political movement can avoid the reality of desire in its midst. Every office building is full of the illicit affairs, the unwanted pregnancies, the crises that happen in human lives. For a political movement to not understand that sexuality is a profound component of both how people are oppressed and how people dream is to not recognize the reality of political power and where it's centered. If I'm fighting for the possibility of having a kind of desire and possibility that right now is not too likely, it gives me a different kind of engagement with the future than, than if I say, oh, well, sex doesn't matter, it's private. Well, sex may be private in the way that you make love, but it's not private in the context of the world we live in. We're targeted as LGBTQ people because we make people nervous around sex, and we practice desire or have the possibility of practicing desire in magical and very, very profound ways. We shouldn't be giving up the possibility of articulating the, the claim of our body and the claim of our desire as something distinctive and erotically profound. In 2012, Amber Hollibaugh, then the executive director for Queers for Economic Justice, explained to radio host Laura Flanders what sex and politics had to do with each other. Desire, she argued, was a way of reflecting on the past, understanding the present, and imagining a future. The erotic and fantasies about what might be sexually possible, she explained, are essential ways to not just connect to the world around us, but also to the people in it who are imagining that better future. Alabaugh, like other queer people born in the 1940s, inherited a conservative American culture where sex was hidden and ideally confined to heterosexual marriage. She had to fight to publicly claim her desiring identities, lesbian, femme, sex worker, erotic writer, feminist, and gay liberation activist. Like Joan Nessel, who appeared in an earlier episode, Hollibaugh went to queer bars to find other sexual outlaws coming alive in sexual communities that formed under cover of night and operated under the uncertain safety of police and mob protection. In the 1960s, it was still illegal in many states to sell alcohol to gay and lesbian people or for queer people to congregate. Bars constantly threatened to expose their patrons with the occasional raid that reassured the public that the police were on the job. Pornography theaters, where gay men met for sex, were subject to similar raids, and sex workers were periodically rounded up, jailed, and fined. Similarly, obscenity laws governed what could or could not be published and sold, viewed, or exhibited. And outside the arts in the theater and film worlds, a so-called known homosexual had difficulty finding work and could certainly not be employed as a teacher, coach, or minister. 
In other words, someone who had contact with the young. Queer people were all seen as potential child molesters. Because of the sexual revolution and the gay liberation movement of the 1960s, these prejudices and laws began to fall away, allowing ordinary people to come out, get good jobs, and seek sexual pleasure openly. As importantly, decisions by the Supreme Court rendered many old laws that had confined sex and sexuality unconstitutional. These decisions, and particularly those that applied the First Amendment to sexual expression, opened the door to the erotic performances, writing, film, and art we enjoy today. Initially, some of this material was little different from the forms of gritty pornography that had previously operated in a semi-clandestine way. But many newly available books were works of literature, novels like D.H. Lawrence's Lady Chatterley's Lover and Vladimir Nabokov's sensational 1962 novel, Lolita. Movies like Midnight Cowboy and Taxi Driver celebrated New York's Times Square as a neon world of sexual outlaws, hustlers, and grifters. But when it came to pornography, the court released a gusher of films, books, and magazines, Some Americans were content to use newly available home video equipment to rent a porn tape now and then, or to visit the adult theaters that sprang up in chains across the nation. But feminists like Amber Hollibaugh, anthropologist Gail Rubin, and writer Patrick Califia took erotic expression in a new direction. They published about their embrace of power exchange sexuality and their political commitment to outlaw desires like leather, S&M, and other sex play that required training and consent. Other women promoted an idea born in radical feminist consciousness raising, that women could take charge of their own pleasure, even if that was ordinary vanilla heterosex. In the 1970s, artist Betty Dobson began giving what she called body sex workshops, which taught women how to masturbate to orgasm, with or without a vibrator. And in 1984, a former performance artist and pornographic actress named Candice Vidala, known by her stage name, Candida Royale, founded Femme Productions, an erotic film company aimed at women and couples. While some feminists criticized women who embraced fetishes that they associated with male violence and predatory sex, the genie was out of the bottle. In the 1990s, feminist erotic writing exploded, and academic feminists were taking pornography seriously as an area of study. By the 21st century, a feminist pornography industry had emerged to take advantage of the internet and produce erotic films that were not only sexy, but had politics, on the screen and on the set. One of those feminist producers and entrepreneurs is Tristan Terramino, who was born in 1971 on Long Island and whose parents were divorced when her father came out as gay. Tristan learned to love her body early on and grew up, as she notes in this episode, without any sense of sexual shame. In 1989, she matriculated at Wesleyan University. Full disclosure, Tristan was my student, and where she also came out into a thriving queer community. An award-winning writer, sex educator, and film producer, Teramino has written widely on the safe practice of anal sex and has been a popular, if occasionally controversial, lecturer on the college circuit. Today, we are here to discuss her new memoir, A Part of the Heart Can't Be Eaten, out this week from Duke University Press. There, she writes about being raised by an open-minded mother and a queer dad, struggling with her mental health, becoming one of the most respected sex educators in the United States, and the right-wing sexual backlash we are dealing with today. Join Tristan Terramino and me for this episode of Why Now? 
where history and politics meet the challenge of today. And I'm your host, Claire Potter, a professor of history emeritus at the New School for Social Research, a contributing editor at Public Seminar, and the author of the Political Junkie Substack. This is episode 36, The Reality of Desire. Tristan Termino, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Tell us the story of this book. Who is this young woman who becomes Tristan Termino? Yeah, I mean, in many ways, people always ask me, how long did it take you to write the book? And I think like my entire life. I mean, because first I had to live it and then I had to process it and then I had to avoid it and then I had to write it. You know, people ask me all the time, sort of like, how did you become you? And to me, I have always just been me, so it all seemed quite natural and organic. And then when I actually had to kind of write out all the experiences I've had in my life, when you put them all side by side, it's almost as if you're like, oh, she couldn't have ended up being any other thing than this because I had a gay dad. I was exposed to queer people very early on, gender fluid people very early in my life. And I had a curiosity about sex and sexuality kind of from go, from the very beginning. I was really interested in sex and not bound by a kind of level of shame that most people are. Most people have a lot of shame when it comes to sex. And I have shame, but it's not about sex. <laughs> That's what I like to say. And so I, I feel like I wanted to share the story of sort of how I got here. And I also wanted to highlight this relationship with my father, which was one of the most important relationships I've had in my life. And it was really defining for me. It was a complicated relationship. It was a great relationship. You know, it had many, many, many layers. But one of the cool things about the book is that my dad wrote his own memoir about his life and he gave it to me to read and I I didn't read it. He died in 1995, spoiler alert. And I began reading it when I began writing my memoir. And so portions of his memoir are in this memoir. And there's just been some really powerful moments for me about kind of looking back and seeing some stuff that has kind of existed in the family line or like in my DNA that came way before me that continued and without me even knowing it was happening. And so you've got these two parents who are very, very different. You've got the mom who is working her ass off to keep the two of you in the middle class and trying to give you a life that is stable and prosperous enough that you won't want for things. You have horses, and we'll talk about the horses a little later. And then you've got this dad who leaves your mom, comes out, is always looking for the place that's going to be home and really not finding it until the end of his life. What was it like to balance these two people in your life? Yeah, 
it, it was quite something, actually. I mean, the other sort of defining thing about my mom is that she was raised by wasps. She's incredibly stoic. She does not access her emotions very easily. And she was also raised by two people who didn't have mothers. And, you know, when I think about how she did the actual best she could in raising me, she didn't have a lot of role models, right? And then on the other hand, my dad was like emotional and effusive and artistic and sort of a free spirit. And this was all before I knew he was gay. Like these were just sort of, this was just how he was. And so I was kind of going between these two poles, right? Of someone who really couldn't understand my emotions and I couldn't really understand hers to someone I felt so close to that like we shared the same nervous system. And then tell me if this is a misreading of the book that closeness can also cause a lot of pain, right? Absolutely. I mean, my father was raised by a mom who was abusive, who was physically and verbally and emotionally abusive. And he carried those wounds with him through the end of his life. I think at times he wanted to be a really great father and also had no idea how to do that right? Again, had no role models. There was no collage. There was no support group for gay parents. I mean, those things just didn't exist. This is like the 80s, right? And our closeness also could become really too intense for both of us and could lead to conflict and and a lot of drama. We're both quite dramatic. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So Tristan, I want to give our listeners some context, which is in the 1980s, a lot of gay dads and lesbian moms weren't even allowed to see their children. I no. mean, the courts would take them away and spouses would vengefully cut kids off from their, their queer parents. So your mother, when you start asking about your dad arranges for you to be parented by him again. There's a brief period when he's out of your life. That was a big deal. Why do you think she was able to do that? Yeah, it was a huge deal. And looking back on it, of course, she would have been supported if she'd told all her friends, oh yeah, no, that's not happening. That's no, we're just not, we're just going to let that go. And she's going to just have one parent. I mean, you could see how people could be like, okay, given all that's happened and that he left you and all this stuff, but she really made it a priority. And then not only did she make it a priority, she had me convinced they both did that they were actually friends, which later it comes out that they, they weren't, <laughs> but they were really good at pretending because I was convinced my parents were really good friends <laughs> because they used to spend time together, especially when I was young. Like my mother would have to like sleep over at his house with me and all of that stuff. And so it's kind of amazing that she did it. And also, you know, I think something that took me many, many years to consider, which I write about in the book is I'm so much like my father and what does it mean to raise a little version of your ex-husband who left you when he came out as gay and have that little person run around your house and be a lot like your ex? 
I mean, I, I just can't imagine that was not difficult for my mom. I agree with you. And she sounds like kind of an amazing person in being able to, I mean, maybe it's that wasp shutting things down and compartmentalizing and so on and so forth, but she's able to set aside one thing in order to do another thing that she knows is right and moral. Yeah. 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 Um, so I promised the listeners we would get back to the horses. There's a moment in which your whole being is sort of directed at ponies and riding and stables. And here you are, your middle class kid that kind of has a working class financial setup. Yeah. But your but your mother arranges for you to do this and join this world. What did that mean to you? Yeah, you know, when you're a kid, you have no idea what anything costs, right? And and we know we know that people have gotten better about this, you know, in recent years, but people didn't talk about money, right? You have no idea what anything costs. I had a sense that people I went to high school with had bigger houses, bigger spending budgets on clothes, you know, went on vacation. So I had a sense that like there were people out there who had more money than we did, but I didn't have any of sense of how much money we had or, or didn't have. And I fell in love with horseback riding when I went to a day camp and I wanted to keep doing it. And my mom said, yes. And I feel like for me, horseback riding like changed my entire relationship with my body. And also it molded my communication skills. When you have to communicate with someone who doesn't speak the same language that you do, you've really got to hone in on the connection and you've got to figure figure it out, especially when that other creature could kill you if they lay down on you. <laughs> and so it was so like the horses are so pivotal in my life and I had no idea what a absolutely ridiculous expensive hobby, probably the worst one I could have picked ever, like above all other sports. But then there were also situations where, for example, when I was leasing the second pony, when I was leasing my second pony, Chipper, my trainer and the owner of that horse didn't charge my mom for a bunch of things. And my trainer essentially knew our financial situation and was like, I'm not going to sort of just run up the bill here. So I didn't even know like all that I had and all that all the privilege I was being given because I didn't understand. I understood class, but not where I was, what our bank account looked like, which is different yeah. than class. Which in, in a lot of ways is another kindness your mother did you because there are a lot of parents who do in fact tell their children, no, we can't afford this. Why do you want that? You know, blah, blah, blah. And it can be very hurtful. And so your, your mother was always kind of thinking ahead to how do I keep this brilliant, wonderful child of mine moving forward without letting her know how hard this is. So you you sort of went where I wanted to go with the horses, which is, as I was reading it, I'm of course thinking, of, here's a woman who becomes an erotic filmmaker, a director, a sex educator. And of course, sex is all about being able to communicate physically. And of course, a lot of the work you do is about verbal communication as part of that and education as part of that. But when we're in the moment, you have to be able to feel 
what's happening with the other person. Can you talk about the similarities and the differences between the horses and the people? <laughs> yes. Well, it's so funny too, because some people are like, oh, wasn't every girl horse crazy? You know, I, I hear that sometimes from people and I think maybe, but it was like profound in my, in my life. You know, I feel like it, it shaped kind of like who I am. And, and I think also I could pretty easily acknowledge even when I was that young that I had to work to be a good rider. There were people I met at the barn, people I met on the horse show circuit who people would say, they just have a natural gift. And actually you could see it. They could get on any horse. They've never ridden them before. They can ride them beautifully. It's perfect. They have some kind of natural gift. And for me, I feel like I didn't have that sort of built-in gift. I actually had to really work at it. I had to like really develop skills in getting in tune with my body, getting in tune with a horse's body, and then trying to sort of communicate across a pretty vast language difference. But I yeah. think it also really helped me be empathetic. And also, I think one of the things that I've taken into my life in relationships is the idea that we're on the same team, right? I think it's really important for you and a partner to be on the same team. Because once you become adversarial, lots of bad stuff can happen. And so I felt like I really had to build trust with a horse and they had to really build trust with me. And that was sort of the whole foundation for us then saying, let's go do these kind of crazy things together, <laughs> like jump over really big fences and run around without a helmet on and you know all sorts of other things, right? So it's sort of that idea of building trust and then being able to create that container where then anything is possible. Yep. And in terms of anything being possible, you're very frank about how young you were when you became aware that your body could do things that were just magical. And of course, we all have that body, but a lot of people are more alienated from it than you are. I also think it's important at this moment in time when right-wing politicians are demonizing the eroticism of children to talk about what it means to be a child and discovering your own sexuality, even though there's a whole world of sex around you. Can you talk to our listeners a little bit about being a kid and starting to understand that your body could do wonderful things? Yeah. It's so funny because I can time it. I know the age that I was when I first masturbated and first had an orgasm because I went to this particular babysitter's house. And that sounds like it's a setup for a porn movie, but in fact, it's not. It's just <laughs> a setup for my own sexual relationship with myself. I think that there wasn't any sort of body shaming in my mom's house and she was never like watching my weight or telling me, you know, because people at five years old get this from their parents. I mean, they get put on diets, they get sent to fat camp. I mean, really, really damaging shit. Right. And so none of that was happening. But at the same time, I wasn't being given any information, right? So I mm -hmm. didn't have any more sex education than any average person in the United States in the 1980s. I was given very, very, very little information. I had one class. And by that, I mean one class period, not like even for a whole year. And so, um, so everything I had to kind of figure out on my own. 
right? It was all sort of about self-exploration and seeing like, wow, like what can my body do? I remember being at my mom's friend's house and, and these were the two French gay guys who used to be amazing cooks. And we were at their house for dinner and I sort of settled in the living room to watch TV and I started masturbating. And so I'm probably, I don't know, I'm seven, I'm eight, I don't know. And she came in and was like, okay, so just so you know, we're in the presence of other people and this is something private. And so why don't I take you to one of their bedrooms? And wow. so she sort of installed me in one of their bedrooms and I <laughs> masturbated and had an orgasm and then like came out for dinner like you do, you know, when you're a kid. Um, but but I, I've heard so many stories about people who were shamed for masturbating when they were quote unquote caught masturbating and how absolutely traumatic that could be for people. And then they develop all this guilt and anxiety around even having just a sexual relationship with themselves. So there were these pieces that I sort of didn't realize were happening when they were happening that seem really important to sort of creating a kind of like shamelessness around my sexuality. And so you grow up, you're a teenager, you are also a brilliant person. You've got this wonderful mind and you end up at Wesleyan University, which is where we met. And you had no way of knowing that Wesleyan University was like the center of the queer universe before you got there. And yet it is. So let's give a little shout out to Wesleyan. Tell us what Wesleyan did to sort of push you forward intellectually, erotically, professionally. I mean, one of the things I thought you were going to say is what you didn't realize was Wesleyan was the best and only place you ever could have gone to college. Because I feel that way about it. You know what I mean? I feel like in hindsight, it's like, wait, you were actually considering going to Cornell? No, that, that wasn't the right that wasn't the right fit. Like you, you've, you've stepped off the path, Tristan. Because I didn't know that much about Wesleyan. No one at my high school, including the guidance counselors, knew anything about Wesleyan. I found out about it in like, you know, a book about you know, schools. And I, I really had no idea what kind of place it was. I just sort of went with my gut that that's where I was meant to be. And it made me who I am. Like it absolutely shaped every aspect of my life. On the one hand, I had been surrounded by white people my whole life. And even like not any, any Jewish people. And I live on Long Island, for Christ's sake. Um, so it's, it's sort of shocking. I had never met people from different backgrounds. And I'd never met such a diverse student body in that way. So all of a sudden, I was like, whoa, this is a whole other world that I have like literally not had access to. And then everyone at Wesleyan was really, really, really smart. I came from a totally ordinary, I'm not mocking you, Sable High School, a totally ordinary public school that was not that ambitious, that had like a few AP classes, you know, just n nothing to write home about. And when I got to Wesleyan, every single one of my classmates was like not only intellectually brilliant, but it's like, oh, for my senior project in high school, I went to Guatemala and I built housing for families. And it's like, you did what? I mean, it really was overwhelming to just be surrounded by people who had such incredibly like rich and amazing lives. 
you know, it was inspiring. It was intimidating, but it was also really inspiring because I felt like all of these people had like these lived experiences that I knew nothing about and they could share them with me. And then, of course, there's the queer thing, right? I I feel like it was the queerest place on earth. You know, it's like day three and we're taking a workshop from the Bisexual Lesbian Gay Alliance where we're role playing that we're gay and we're going around and talking about it. Um, And by the way, the person who facilitated, so funny, the person who facilitated that workshop for me, where like it was the first time I had to say, hi, I'm Tristan, I'm a lesbian, is actually Kate Arthur, who is now a really big time Hollywood TV writer for Vanity Fair. And I follow her on Twitter and I just think like, Kate, you you don't even know what you did to me. Like you don't even know. (laughs) So there's queerness kind of everywhere and not just you know, not just like, oh, we have to take these like awareness workshops or sensitivity workshops. It wasn't like that. It was like baked into the culture because the queer kids were cool. They had the best parties. It was cool to experiment with your sexuality. Like that, that was like a neon sign for me everywhere I got that message. Like, oh my God, sexuality, so fluid, so complicated. Yeah, just go for it. Just go for it. And you did, bigly. I mean, it became your career. But <laughs> but there's also this moment where you find out at a certain point that your father is gay, which is not something that you are immediately told when your parents focus no. on rebuilding the relationship. Did you like that story? Because like, in hindsight, it, it seems very funny. <laughs> I loved it. But then you go to Wesleyan and you've, you've got this gay dad and you're coming out and you tell your mother, what was that like? Because, I mean, you're telling us, you know, that she was very flexible, very wonderful, very open-minded. Do you think there was a little bit of a pang of like, oh no, not another one? I don't know that she'll ever admit that, but there had to have been. Like, there had to have been. I mean, there's some basic psychic analysis here where both the people in her family were abandoning her for queerness, right? That seems mm, pretty devastating. I'm not a therapist, but I'll just call that (laughs) mildly devastating. But Um, you've had therapy, so. (laughs) Oh, my God. You qualify. I've had so much therapy. Right. So So you deserve a license. Okay, great. Great. So I think there had to have been a pang of something. You know, I think this is also a point where people, like there are people's politics and then there are, oh my God, but it's my kid, right? Like as a feminist, of course she was like, I am down with this for everyone. And, oh wait, what? It's like the queer version of Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. Um, (laughs) You know, we all believe that this is right, but oh my God, it's happening now. What do we do? Yeah. what, What do we do? So I think that there had to be a moment of that for her. And also my dad did not have the reaction that I wanted him to have when I came out. He was like, cool, just want you to be happy. I'm like, wait, what? You're not throwing me like a coming out party? Like we're 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 the same in so many ways and now we're like the same same. <laughs> and he was just like, mm, 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 mm. okay. Thinking about your dad, he'd probably spent years saying I don't want who I am to hurt my daughter in any I mean a lot of that homophobia gets internalized yes so that may have been part of it but but you also shared a lot of other things with your father and one is a kind of volatile emotional life 
which both was very intimate, but also kind of painful. Would you talk to our listeners a little bit about that? Yeah. You know, before I read his memoir, all I sort of knew about my dad's mom was that she was, quote, crazy. Right? That was kind of the party line. My, my mother was crazy, and she did bad things to me. So first of all, reading about the abuse in detail is, is, is quite another thing. It's quite different to read about it and some of the brutality of it because crazy seemed like so amorphous and just like, what does that even mean, right? How is she crazy? Is she eccentric? What's going on? So my grandmother was much later in life diagnosed as bipolar and she was put on medication um, and that really worked for her. My father's sister became a psychiatric nurse. It's all very on the nose here. Got it. (laughs) And my father struggled with, I mean, he was diagnosed with depression later in his life, but he also struggled with manic episodes. He wasn't treated for them, but they were pretty classically manic episodes. And I would sometimes be on the receiving end of an episode of mania, which was really confusing to me. I didn't understand what was going on. I didn't have another adult there to be like, oh, let me translate this for you. Let me explain this to you. Um, Let me help you process this, right? It's just me and him and he's acting bizarrely and, you know, he's hostile and he's sometimes like slightly violent and it was terrifying to me. It really was. And and, And it's sort of none of it made sense to me. And then Probably not surprisingly, um, I'm diagnosed with major depression in 1993. So this is the this is in the same year that he was diagnosed with AIDS. I started having intense suicidal ideation and just some of the classic symptoms of depression. And that was actually something I had like a lot of shame about. I had really good caregivers in terms of like the therapist that my mom found me and the psychiatrist to do medication and all that stuff. They were very caring and wonderful, but I had no one to talk to about it. And it was like a secret for me as someone who like doesn't have a lot of secrets. You know, everything you read about me on the internet right now today is true. So it was hard to have a secret. And it was also, it it was a different time. You know, I feel like now there are all these, like their entire Instagram accounts devoted to depression. devoted to like being in a community of other depressed people, memes, funny t-shirts about being on meds, like serotonin jokes. I mean, there's this whole (laughs) wide world of it, right? And it's like, you can probably get like wrapping paper that says like, I'm good. I'm on my meds or something right now, you know? Back then that was not the case. I didn't know anyone who was depressed. I didn't know anyone who was in therapy. I didn't know anyone who was on medication. And again, I was sort of setting this standard for myself, which is that like no one can know this about me. In the middle of all of that, you have to help your father in his final illness. And then you have to figure out how you're going to live your life without him. This whole time you've been writing and um, making contacts in the erotic literary world and so on. And we really get quite late in the book to how you come out again, and this time as an artist and an erotic filmmaker and a sex advisor. 
How do you become someone who is both at the same time hiding depression and saying, I'm going to take all of these things that I'm really good at, and I'm going to make a career that almost nobody has? Right. A career that doesn't exist, which also people who are younger than me don't understand. They're like, but didn't you start out like everyone else started out? Whereas like you were the sex columnist for your high school newspaper? Isn't that like kind of the, (laughs) oh my God, kids, you do not know. It was a wasteland. (laughs) There was no one. There was like Dr. Ruth Westheimer and I I didn't identify with her on any level. Like there was no, there there were amazing writers. There was Carol Queen, there was Susie Bright, but like they weren't making money. They weren't making a living out of writing about sex, you know, and and this is partially your fault, which they'll read in the book. So true. Is that Claire told me when I was convinced (laughs) that I wanted to be a lawyer Claire told me I didn't want to be a lawyer and I didn't want to go to law school, but that I wanted to write about sex and that I was really good at it. And that was a revelation. I mean, that was a moment, you know, it's a story I tell all the time because it was a moment where you saw something in me that I couldn't imagine. Like I I couldn't imagine that as even a possibility. And you were like, oh yeah, no, it's a total possibility. Yeah. follow, Follow that. I think you should follow that. And I was like, what are you talking about? Really, what are you talking about? Yeah, it was a job that didn't exist. And and I feel like I kind of had to make it up as I went along. And there's something so sort of paradoxical, too, about being so open about my sex life, especially like when I got into writing my Village Voice column and taking people sort of on these like sexual adventures with me and being so open about something so taboo still today in the United States to talk about, and yet not being willing to share anything about my mental health early, pretty early on. You also have some mentors or people who are able to actually kind of give you a little direction. One of them is Candace Vidala, and one of them is Patrick Califia. What did these erotic writers and filmmakers who were feminists from an earlier era, how were they able to create the platform that you could then say, all right, I'm going to take it to the next level? So what's interesting about this in terms of like the sort of Susie Bright, Deborah Sundal, Carol Queen, Patrick Califia, I would even include Betty Dodson in that crowd. What was interesting about them is that when I, like when I read Macho Sluts, which was Patrick Califia's book of erotic short stories, lesbian, BDSM, really amazing. I read that book and thought, wow, these are really hot fantasies. And then I would go on to read On Our Backs and like hear about Susie Bright's life, which she shared really openly. And I would think, wow, these are really cool fantasies. And also, isn't this kind of a roadmap for how you want to live? (laughs) You know, and I don't know that anyone said, you know, we're going to put out a lesbian sex magazine so we can make a roadmap for people to live by its tenets and values (laughs) and ethics. But that is how I absorbed those texts. This is representation. And this gives me an idea of like what my life could be. And I think the same thing with Candida Royale, who is like the absolute original feminist pornographer. Everyone told her, this is nothing. Women don't like porn. They don't want to watch porn, even if it's a different kind of porn. This is never going to sell. You're out of your mind, right? 
she heard so much no in her career and she just forged ahead. She was like, okay, I'm just going to blow on by you guys and have a really major successful career that then you're all going to try to imitate, but not do very well. (laughs) Right. She was just like full steam ahead, full steam ahead. Of course, what's interesting is that both Patrick Califia and Candida Royale are able to get to a certain point, but never really make any money off of it. But you had the internet. (laughs) And, you know, so there's this historical moment where you have the vision and the dream, and then there's this tool that appears. So can you just give us a couple minutes on how you built your business? Yeah. So immediately what comes to mind is that my very first website, which is puckerup.com, it's still on, on the internets today, but I built it with someone who like, you know, I met someone somewhere and they were like, I know how to build websites. And the first thing I think of now is that it had a teal background (laughs) with white text over it. Like the absolute worst. Like, like today, Tristan, I would, I would judge that so hard that I would leave that website immediately. I'd be like, nope, nope. It's unreadable. What is this color scheme? What is this? No, no. But even before the internet, let's talk about before the internet. I had started going to really cool conferences, like the World Pornography Conference in 1998 in Los Angeles, right? And I was having all these adventures, and I was teaching my very first sex workshops, often in in sex shops. Like once I taught one in Philly in someone's backyard, they just invited all their friends over, and they were like, we'll make this happen. And so I started writing this email newsletter. And I, I basically was just sharing it with like my friends and anyone I knew who had an email address probably at that point, which is like still <laughs> probably only about 30 people, right? And so I started writing these newsletters and just being like, Here, here's what I'm up to. And people responded immediately right away to them. And they were like, this is so much fun. And like, you should do this on a regular basis. And I love these stories. And I love to hear about these adventures. And so, you know, I still have a mailing list. I was just talking about this with someone today because so many people who do sex work, who work in sex education are being deplatformed by these social media platforms every single day. It's a scary thing. It's like, I wake up every morning and think, has Instagram basically just canceled my account. I do. I wake up with that fear every day. So I have this mailing list, which I still have. It has like 9,000 people on it now. So 30 to 9,000. That's good. But it was a way to sort of directly talk to people and also kind of develop a writer's voice, which I didn't know that I was doing at the time. I thought I was just kind of sharing what was going on in my life, sort of like that Christmas newsletter, which is sometimes excruciating, but mine was better and it wasn't about Christmas. (laughs) But also, this is like a moment when blogging is also starting up and people are coding their own sites. So it's a moment when we're beginning to see social networking emerge in some ways that are kind of mimicking past media, but they are new and they're they're reliant on computers. And to me, you know, I also grew up during the zine revolution, right? I grew up during the Riot Girl era where everyone had a zine. I had a zine. Pucker up the name comes from my zine that I published for a year. And so the the internet felt like that sort of next step. Like, oh, you want to try to get your zine in the hands of as many people as possible, like outside of your social circle and like the one comic shop in Brooklyn that will carry it. Well, there's this thing called the internet. 
put it put yeah. it up there. We're going to leave your big career in erotic film and erotic media, I hope, for the next volume of memoir that's going to come out because your career is so fascinating. I mean, it, it really spans a whole chapter in the history of pornography that's over now. And, and it was you who, who said, you know, nobody can make money in porn anymore because people ju can just steal your work right off the internet. Yeah. Yeah. So the second memoir, I mean, I couldn't like have a 600 page memoir. No one would read that or publish that? This is a buildings roman. And so it takes us to a place in which you will then jump off into your life. So Tristan, one of the many reasons I wanted to have you on the podcast is that we are in this horrifying moment of increasing repression in which the right is once again creating a moral panic about how children are endangered by queer people and Target and the schools and their teachers and no one should have sex education. So that was my reason for having you on. But why should our listeners read this book now? You know, one of the reasons that I wrote the book is because you know, there's me, my speck of dust in the universe history, right? And then there's my dad's history. But as you trace both of our histories as queer, white, able-bodied people in America, you begin to see the sort of similarities and the differences. And, and we haven't really done a lot of like history of queer people in the 90s that doesn't include AIDS as one of its central themes. and We've talked a lot more and a lot more gay men have written about their lives in the 80s and 90s than I think queer women um, and non-binary folks. And so part of this is also my history ha is in a bigger context. Like, yes, this is like what I did with my girlfriend when we went to L.A. and we joined Queer Nation. And, but it's also like it's a piece of queer history that still needs to be told. I mean, I, I think if anything, Sarah Schulman's book about ACT UP, you know, does this absolutely flawlessly and brilliantly. That book is an amazing piece of history. We need those stories and we also need the next generation to know those stories very importantly. So I think part of this is like the power of just telling your story and then also maybe other people being able to sort of see themselves and their own history. And I think... When you see some of the differences between when my dad came out, I mean, so much shame, explicit homophobia around the kitchen table at dinner every night, really steeped in shame, in religious trauma, in anxiety, all of that took a toll on him and really delayed his ability to come out. And then even when he did come out, he really, really struggled. Like you said before, the internalized homophobia, it, it's right there. It's right there on the surface and you can see it. And then I come out 20 years later and, you know, the chapter of my coming out story is called My Closet Has No Door, right? Just to give people an idea of what my experience was like coming out, which was it was like a celebration. I had support. Everyone around me was like cheering for me. They were super excited about it. And, and that's just a difference of 20 years. And so you can see that then repeated every 20 years, every 20 years to where we are now. And so part of the tremendous visibility and representation we have of queer folks 
in the living rooms, on the TVs, you know, everywhere. At, and not just on the coasts in middle America. Part of all of that has made it easier for a lot of people to come out and has made it less agonizing and tragic. But then we have the resulting backlash to that, that now queer people are so much a part of everyday life in a way that I don't know that I thought it would happen this fast. I don't know that we like would have legal gay marriage like as fast as we did. And yet the right has now mobilized pretty much its entire political platform about being anti-queer, anti-trans, anti-women's bodily autonomy, <laughs> anti-sex ed, anti-anything in books that slightly causes a wrinkle in their forehead. They're running on that. They're running on all of that. And that's it for today's show. Thanks for listening. You can subscribe to Why Now on your favorite podcast platform. Please leave a rating and a comment so that other listeners can find us. Go to the Political Junkie Substack at clairepotter.substack.com for show notes, to listen to more episodes, or to leave a comment. You can subscribe to Political Junkie for free, or you can pay as little as $5 a month to get every podcast and every newsletter delivered straight to your desktop two times a week. Share this podcast with a friend who loves history, politics, and smart conversation. And follow me on Twitter at Tenured Radical, that's capital T, capital R, or at my website, clairepotter.com. Why Now is supported by the New School for Social Research and by paying subscribers to Political Junkie. Why Now and Political Junkie are written, recorded, edited, and produced by me, Claire Potter. My opening theme is by Galaxy News, and my closing theme is by Avocado Junkie. That's all for now. See you next time. Mm-hmm.